0: Physics world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be looking at the latest in quantum computing and quantum simulations. And we'll hear from Ryan Babish, a researcher in quantum computing at Google. And this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience. The company provides market-leading cryogenic systems that enable quantum technologies, new materials and device development in the physical sciences. Ultra-cold temperatures are essential to achieve the low-noise environment necessary for the operation of solid-state quantum qubits and for understanding materials at the quantum level. These temperatures prevent vibrations, so you don't need to purchase expensive active vibration damping. Oxford Instruments has released the Proteox system, a new platform for scaling up quantum computing. The company will play a key role in providing the Proteox system for the first commercial quantum computer in the UK. Please visit nanoscience.oxinst.com That's nanoscience.oxinst.com for more information. But back in July 2018, I looked at the future of quantum computing by travelling to Birmingham University in the UK and talking to Professor Kai Bongs. Now, over two years later, The Institute of Physics is preparing for Quantum 2020. In case you didn't know, Physics World is published by IOP Publishing and is the magazine of the Institute of Physics. Quantum 2020 is a free online event running from the 19th to the 22nd of October. So there seemed no better time to catch up with exactly what's going on in quantum computing. So I caught up with Tim Smith ahead of that conference this month.
2: I'm Tim Smith. I'm an Associate Director for Product Development at IOP Publishing, and I'm involved with our Quantum 2020 event this year as co-chair. We um, started the discussions around Quantum 2020 back in 2019, pre-coronavirus, at a time where we were going to be holding um, um, what we planned to be a major event for quantum technology in Beijing, one of the reasons for us doing this was to um, collaborate more closely between the UK quantum science communities and what is a strong and rapidly emerging community in China. Um, clearly the world around has changed and our plans for Quantum 20 changed radically, but in an exciting way. So it's now a virtual event and a, one that's seen us learn a lot along the way. We're delighted to be working in collaboration with both the Chinese Physical Society and the Chinese Academy of Sciences through both MS organisations, supporting organisations, but also in terms of the honorary chair, Professor Zhang Wai Pan at USTC in China, and also Professor Chao Yang Liu, chair of the organising committee, who I've been working very closely with in the development of the programme and the event itself. And, you know, our goals for Quantum 2020 are really to bring together the international quantum science and technology communities through a really high-profile program of talks, sessions, um, and a really key point for the conference is to bridge academia and industry, and that's been a major part of our thinking around the program.
1: So why quantum now?
2: Well, great question. Um, Quantum for us, the Institute of Physics and IOP Publishing, is a really important area. It's an area that we've served through a number of our publications, whether that's Physics World or journals like New Journal of Physics, Quantum Science and Technology, and most recently, um, our new launch, Materials for Quantum Technology. So we've got a long history of publishing in the area, but I guess quantum science as a field has evolved from something that was fundamental and to some extent quite theoretical to an area now that has some high potential for real-world applications. The fact that we're now seeing industry major companies like IBM, Microsoft, Google, now engaging with the subject area and interfacing with academia, that's changed the game a lot. Um, and so uh, the multidisciplinary aspect of the field has also changed a lot and the global picture and funding in the area. And for us, that makes it a compelling area. It's a compelling area for science and one that we feel well-placed to uh, to bring the community together on.
1: What are you most excited about hearing about it? I
2: think for us, I mean, the, the, the subject coverage of the conference is broad. It's going to cover... Topics uh, ranging from quantum software, quantum machine learning, um, a really rapidly emerging area, right down to quantum foundations, um, and also areas um, with more applications, such as how material science, for example, is now playing an increasingly important role in quantum technology, um, and areas such as quantum sensing, quantum metrology, and quantum communication. So I think in terms of the subject areas, some really interesting really cutting-edge areas are going to are going to come out of this and the speakers are are, are fantastic i've got to say we're also really excited about some of the panel sessions that we've got involved one of them specifically around quantum technology and industry where we'll be hearing from uh, panelists from around the world as to some of the challenges that there are in industry perhaps interfacing with academia and we'll hear a little bit about startup companies for example and again some of the challenges that perhaps exist there around the world And then another really great panel session where we're bringing together leading voices from major national quantum technology programs from around the world. Eight national programs. Um, I'll try and list them off. Hopefully I won't forget any. So that's China, the UK, Canada, Australia, Japan, um, the US and the EU through their quantum flagship program, all represented on a panel where we're going to be hearing about the milestones and the goals for those programs and what their near-term priorities are and how that might have changed actually in light of coronavirus has that changed the game a little bit um and hopefully to break down some kind of barriers if you like for how those programs might be able to collaborate um a little bit more into the future um so there's you know, a whole raft of stuff and you know absolutely iop itself will have quite a presence as well at the event through um, a meet the editors session where Delegates will be able to ask some questions of our editors-in-chief for the relevant journals, um, and we'll also have a couple of presentations about the publishing process and peer review.
1: i tell you what sticks out for me in that, is um, material science and quantum, I just don't seem to fit together.
2: It's a good question, and it's one that I suppose is fairly new to the scene in terms of the importance that material science is likely or let's say certain to play in order for quantum technology to have real world applications. One of the challenges that there is in in developing, um, let's say um, um, a realizable quantum computer or realizable quantum technologies, quantum enabled technologies, is the uh, challenge of scalability and material science in the creation of qubits or quantum bits in whatever form they might take has a major role to play and um, I mean, it's not a brand new area, um, but I suppose it's an area that now that funding bodies are starting to recognise through dedicated programmes, um, and I suppose we observed that as a publisher through sort of discussions with the community um, that led us to go ahead and launch this very new journal for us, Materials for Quantum Technology, specifically aimed at addressing some of the challenges that material science needs to step up and, and, and meet, if you like, in order for real-world quantum technology is really to come to fruition.
1: The conference certainly sounds fascinating and we'll hear more about that later in the podcast, but I wanted to know more about this research that's going on into quantum computing. And one of the speakers at the conference is Google's Ryan Babush. and I caught up with him to discuss just what it is that they're up to.
0: My name's Ryan Babush. I'm the head of quantum algorithms at Google. I'm a research scientist at Google and part of Google's quantum computing effort, which is the effort to build quantum computers and deploy them to do useful things.
1: So you're actually working with quantum computers today?
0: We do have quantum computers in a sense, but not in another sense. So, um, I mean, a quantum computer is a device that uses quantum mechanics to process information. Uh, and we certainly have devices like this. In fact, uh, we have devices now which are large enough that they can execute quantum programs that you can't simulate classically. Uh, so you know we have, in in that sense, some very powerful quantum computers. However, the the sort of ultimate vision of quantum computers is to have what we uh, call a, an error corrected quantum computer. Uh, so this is a device that sort of operates very cleanly according to a certain mathematical model. Uh, it doesn't have errors that are contaminating its operation. Uh, and there's a long-term vision to build these devices, but we're not there yet. The devices we have today, they're what we call NISC devices, or noisy intermediate scale quantum devices. Uh, they are quantum computers, they can execute you know, quantum logic circuits but they're very susceptible to errors. So you know, we'll run the same circuit uh, a million times and we'll have an error. Depending on how big the circuit is, we can have errors in it occurring 50% of the time or 90% of the time. And so currently when we use these devices, a lot of the emphasis is really figuring out how do you extract the correct answer uh, given the fact that you're going to have these errors.
1: I'm wondering what the actually look like these machines that you're working with today. We've all got an idea of what a computer is, but a quantum computer is not going to look anything like that, is it?
0: Oh, no, not at all. Uh, so the quantum computers we have today are based on superconducting qubit technologies. So they're um, they're basically circuits made out of special materials, which we cool to uh, temperatures that are colder than interstellar space on the order of 15 millikelvin. And they start to exhibit Quantum behaviors, uh, you know, similar to the behaviors that an atom or an electron might exhibit. Uh, you know, they can have, they can be in two different states at the same time, and there can be this sort of spooky correlation between different parts of the chip, which seems to transcend your normal intuition about space and locality and these things. Um, and we control the devices with microwave electronics. Uh, and they in, in in principle they look like um, well they're usually hanging upside down from the ceiling and have you know tens or hundreds of thousands of wires coming out of them they look like these sort of big you know upside down R2D2s or something like this
1: This episode has received the generous support of Oxford Instruments Nanoscience. The company is the pioneer of the dilution refrigerator technology used in today's quantum technologies. Their newest innovation, the Proteox 5MK, is the world's coldest continuous operation commercial dilution refrigerator. This 5 milliKelvin system is designed to assist researchers in reaching the lowest possible electron temperatures to explore exotic quantum states that form the basis for the next generation of qubits. Returning to the conversation with Google's Ryan Babish, I have to say that he sent me a photograph of one of these machines that look like an upside-down R2-D2. And I have to say to any Doctor Who and Star Wars fans that the resemblance is closer to an upside-down Dalek. Either way, it's a pretty impressive sight. I wanted to know what Ryan and Google are trying to achieve with it.
0: I'd say that the main purpose of, the, of building the devices today is to sort of push the boundaries of what we can achieve with the technology and to better understand quantum computing themsel- uh, itself. But there are experiments that we can run on these devices today that pertain to a number of applications. So I think the original vision of quantum computers is uh, was introduced by Richard Feynman in the early '80s. It really sort of started from the observation that if you wrote down uh, the laws of physics required to simulate quantum mechanical systems and you tried to use a classical computer to model those systems, you would find that the computational difficulty of doing that uh, seemed to grow exponentially in sort of an intractable way with the size of the system. So, for example, if you wanted to measure a system of maybe 5 or 10 electrons. This could be done easily on a laptop, but already at 20 electrons, you might need a supercomputer, and at 40 electrons, you know, you might need a... a, You really couldn't do that. It would be just completely intractable. Uh, You know, you need a computation to run for millions of years or something like this. Um, And so there was this idea that, you know, instead of just surrendering to the complexity of quantum mechanics, Uh, that perhaps we could actually build a device that used quantum mechanics for its operation and harness that complexity as a resource. And so the original application was it was observed that if you could build a device that operated according to quantum mechanics it could efficiently simulate these equations describing quantum mechanics. So um, the original application was for simulating quantum systems which occur all over the place. So for example uh, the fundamental laws of physics that describe chemistry, which describe chemistry incredibly accurately and are extremely well known, there's no ambiguity in what they are, have been known for almost a hundred years, but to exactly solve those equations, to predict the properties of new materials or exactly how a chemical reaction will occur, that's, um, that's something that's intractable for today's computers, but if you had a quantum computer, you could do this efficiently. And you could, you know, completely in silico, you know, or in, in aluminum or whatever we'd say with with the materials we build our devices out of, uh, you could you know, exactly predict um, the efficiency of new solar cell materials or how effective a new material for a battery cathode would be. Or you could design new catalysts for industrial processes, which would take a lot less energy. Um, So, you know, originally this was, I think, sort of the most impactful application. And and indeed, this still looks like one of the most promising applications of quantum computers, simulating these physical systems. There there was a lot of enthusiasm that that started for the field in the 90s upon this discovery by Peter Shore that you could uh, use the capabilities of a quantum computer to um, render tractable a a problem which seems to have nothing to do with quantum mechanics and that was the problem of um, finding the prime factors of very large numbers very efficiently, which sounds pretty esoteric but it turns out this is the basis of a lot of internet security, uh, RSA security in particular. So we found out there were these applications in cryptography which you know quantum computers seem to be exponentially faster than classical computers at. And that really had nothing to do with physics. So, you know, then people started to wonder well, what else could quantum computers be particularly useful for? And we eventually found that under certain contexts, they can solve, say, linear systems of equations exponentially faster than classical computers. And that meant they could solve certain differential equations faster than classical computers. Uh, and, you know, there are some areas in, say, optimization and machine learning, which are very popular, broadly applicable areas where it seems that quantum computers can provide some advantage as well. Uh, so at this point in time, there's a lot of areas in like linear algebra optimization and machine learning that people are also um, thinking about using quantum computers for.
1: There is a school of thought, I mean, certainly I know people who would say that quantum computers are never going to happen.
0: Well, I mean, I think I've I've been hearing this sentiment from folks as long as I've been in the field and in fact, when I originally entered the field of quantum computing, I thought it was just a really cool, interesting idea and was a little bit of a was a little bit of a pipe dream, but just you know, in the last 10 years since I've been in this field, we've seen really remarkable progress. I mean, we've gone from uh, devices that had very high error rates on just you know a, a few qubits, like three qubits, to devices that are now pushing sixty qubits and um, have you know extremely low error rates, error rates near one part in a thousand. Uh, so there's been incredible progress in the field, and the team at Google now has a ten-year roadmap. They were very serious about for building one of these error corrected fault tolerant quantum computers that could really enable some of these calculations that the field's been dreaming about for decades. Um, but you know, last year our team uh, published uh, you know data on the first quantum computation which we performed in our lab, which would be. Uh, in practice intractable to replicate on classical computers. So we actually used a quantum computer to solve a problem. It was a fairly contrived problem, but it was a formally well-defined problem that you couldn't use Earth's largest supercomputers to solve. And so at that point, I mean, it's, you know, we still have a long ways to go before we have something that's uh, commercially valuable. Uh, but at that point, I think it's it's fair to say that you know we really have a unique computational resource here already, uh, and so in that sense, I, I do think there's uh, there's a sense in which quantum computing has arrived. Uh, of course, like I say, we're still we're still far away from you know very valuable applications of it, but it can at least do some things.
1: So for Google, it's not something that's just blue sky thinking, and it's. something that they eventually want to make money out of.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think that the interest in it sort of originates because Google sees itself as a a computing company at the end of the day. And, you know, we want to be a leader in uh, computing technologies and especially, you know, a a new technology that seems that it might offer uh, new capabilities in areas like information processing and machine learning, Uh, you know, those seem to be sort of aspects of Google's business so it's you know naturally a, a technology I think the company would be uh, very interested in um, but yes it, I mean at the end of the day we we are a business and we do um, you know we are we are constantly thinking about uh, how we can sort of build a market around quantum computing and what the first uh, commercially viable use cases will be um, and so Um, I mean, in in fact, we already have a program of working with uh, industrial partners, Uh, so for example, a lot of our partners are in uh, industries like uh, material science or, um, you know, the building of batteries or things like this, Um, and they're interested in using quantum computers for use cases as it pertains to chemistry research. So we're already sort of working with these partners to, to try to find use cases that are really impactful for their businesses and have value. Can you give me any examples? Yeah, one of our industrial partners is you know, Daimler, um, of which, of course, uh, owns Mercedes and builds a lot of uh, trucks and cars. And so as part of their electrification effort, they're, they're quite interested in developing better battery technologies. And so making better materials for, say, the cathodes and batteries or something like this is an important material science problem and one that uh, is sort of challenging to approach from a first principles perspective uh, using classical computers today but is something that they hope can be accelerated in the future using quantum computers.
1: Quantum computers and electric cars sounds like the perfect future episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, but Google aren't alone in this, are they?
0: Yeah, there's there's some pretty good competition uh, in, in this area. Um, I mean, there's a few large companies that come to mind. Uh, say IBM has a large effort. Microsoft has a large effort, both of which have been Uh, at the problem for many years now. Uh, There are some newer players in the field, like Amazon, but they seem to be um, fairly serious about it. Um, There's also a few startup companies that seem to be quite well-funded and have ambitions to build these devices as well. So, for example, there's Rigetti Computing and uh, PsyQuantum which are both uh, Bay Area-based companies. There's another company called IonQ, which is developing these devices. I mean, at this point, there's really hundreds of companies uh, in the mix. And I think a lot of the big tech companies that you might think are there probably are there, whether it's, you know, Intel or, um, you know, what what have you at this point. Um, but there's also a lot of, it's, it's kind of a vibrant space for, for startups as well, especially on, I mean, there's there's only a handful of startups. There are some beyond what I mentioned who are trying to really, build their own quantum computers. That does take a lot of resources. Uh, but there's also this large ecosystem of companies which are trying to, say, help develop software for quantum computers or develop uh, tools that would help companies make better use of quantum computers. There's a lot going on in this space.
1: But is the technology going to be something that's only used for companies as you say or i mean i suppose it's not likely that we're going to have to have upside down r2d2s with thousands of wires hanging out of them in one room in our house in the future is it
0: historically it's always difficult to anticipate the way that information technologies develop and uh you know in particular one of the challenges of building quantum computers is essentially a material science problem and controlling and improving the um you know the quality of the fabrication procedures for building them and ironically one of the best things that quantum computers can help with is um, you know material science problems so we have a technology that uh, you might expect once we get to a certain point uh, as quantum computers get more powerful it will accelerate the rate of development of quantum computers and You know whenever you have the rate of something is proportional to how much of it you have you tend to get exponential growth and so it's hard to predict exactly where that will go and maybe it could go uh, take us to a place where these devices could be miniaturized and would be practical to have in your home however at least in the next couple decades my expectation is that is not the case um, these devices are uh, quite complicated and they do require a lot of infrastructure to, say, cool down and control and so forth. And with today's technology, um, I mean, what we really, the way we envision people using quantum computers mostly is via the cloud. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, our, our team is, is working on, or in fact, we, we've already started in a, in a limited way, rolling out access to our devices. Uh, for external use through a cloud interface, and you know the reality is that currently most applications of, of quantum computers are in um, you know certain sort of high-performance computing areas or scientific applications. So you know as we say things like you know machine learning or um, or chemistry, or material science, and so currently I think it does make a lot of sense that people would be accessing these these devices through the cloud. But like I say, in the long term, I, I definitely don't want to rule anything out.
1: Well, that's interesting. But in the short term, of course, you're going to be talking at the Quantum 2020
0: conference. Yeah, so uh, recently our, our team used uh, our uh, sort of flagship quantum processor to perform a demonstration of a, a quantum algorithm to model chemical systems, so um, in particular to model the mechanism of a chemical reaction. And we did a sort of much larger um, realisation of of such a calculation than than had been performed before, and we published that uh, in Science uh, last month, and so I'm going to be talking about that work.
1: I'm sure you, like me, will be wanting to know how you can possibly get to hear about that from Ryan at the Quantum 2020 conference. Here's Claire Webber from IOP Publishing. And we'll hear again from Tim Smith.
3: It's quite easy. They can just go to our website, which is ioppublishing.org forward slash quantum hyphen 2020. Um, And now that the event um, is virtual, it means that it's actually free for people to attend. We've had a great response from sponsors who are allowing us to make it free. Come along and sign up. Um, We can also um, follow the conversation on Twitter. So we have a hashtag for the conference. um, So hashtag quantum 2020. um, So people can find out the latest updates about the conference, um, get involved with any questions they have for the panels. Also for our meet the editor sessions, um, so yeah, we're we're really pleased that we can get more people involved. We've actually got delegates from ninety two different countries signed up at the moment. Um, we've got several thousand registered delegates, so we're we're really pleased that it's had such a wide and international take up.
2: Another really exciting aspect of Quantum Twenty Twenty is that we're using it as an opportunity to announce two brand new awards from. Um, IOP publishing that will recognise um, in both cases actually talented early career scientists working within quantum science and technology. One of the awards will recognise particularly early career scientists, those with, within three years of their PhD um, and the second award will recognise um, outstanding scientific achievement from people within eight years of their PhD. So we're actually in the midst of the decision-making process for those awards right now. Um, The last day of the conference, Thursday, the 22nd of October, will see us as part of the closing session announce the two winners of those awards. But I can already say, knowing what the nominations look like and how outstanding they are, we've got a serious challenge on our hands to, um, to identify the two people. But it's been fantastic to see the response from the community to those awards in terms of the sheer number of nominations that we've received and we're really excited about announcing those and what that could mean for the future careers of the of the two winners involved. The conference takes place from 19th to the 22nd of October. One of the challenges has been the time zone situation. We want it to be international. Um, we wanted to make sure for certain um, we reached a c- Big audience in China, as well as other parts of the world. Uh, so that's certainly fed into the timing of some of the talks and how we've had to schedule the speakers depending on the time zones that they're they're, they're working in. So it kicks off at uh, eight o'clock in the morning, Beijing time on the 19th of October. Um, To the
1: Thursday. That's all for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, and thank you very much for listening. And a very special thank you to Oxford Instruments Nanoscience for their generous support for this episode. To learn more about their low temperature systems for quantum computing applications, please visit nanoscience.oxinst.com. That's nanoscience.oxinst.com. And in next month's episode, We'll be looking at the links between Lego and physics. I know I've said that before, but that Venus announcement somewhat took over that month, but barring something as momentous as the possible signs of life in the atmosphere of Venus between now and November, I promise you that next month we'll be talking about Lego and physics.
0: Physics world.